Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. So about a week ago, as we record this intro for a classic episode... Um, there was an ad that ran on the Hallmark Channel. Oh my goodness, yeah. Yes, for Zola, which is a wedding hosting and planning site. And this online anti-LGBTQ plus group called One Million Moms loudly complained about it. Hallmark pulled the ad, claiming they were never going to be divisive or generate controversy. That was kind of the statement they released. And then they generated so much controversy. The hashtag boycott Hallmark started trending. Celebrities weighed in. Glad weighed in. Zola said they would no longer advertise with Hallmark. And then Hallmark reinstated the commercial. Tis the season. <laughs> yep. You got to either gotta stand for something. You got to. I mean, Target had that same thing going on with them when they did the transgender or just the neutral bathrooms. Yeah. And they're like, we're standing by that as well as celebrating um, pride. Mm-hmm. You got to. You got to. Well, <sighs> maybe Hallmark learned a Hallmark lesson. I hope so. Yes. <laughs> love is love. Love is love. (laughs) And the classic we have for you today, I thought was kind of appropriate, is about queering romantic comedies. Right. Yeah, because when you think about it... Hallmark has all the romantic comedies. They do, and And they are not queer, or they haven't been. Yeah, I don't think I've seen that. (laughs) No, but maybe in the future. Let's hope. Let's hope so. Let's hope. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this classic episode. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I can't believe we're here at the last installment of our rom-com summer series. It's been a wild ride. How it has been indeed. And you know what's part of what has been so fun about doing all of this pop culture research is (laughs) revisiting movies and themes that I have previously seen or just known about and uncovering so much hidden meaning and nuance that, like, a young Caro didn't know existed or didn't know what it meant. Such as? Well, such as a lot of the early Hayes Code era gay character tropes that we see in the 30s and 40s specifically, but also, of course, moving into later decades. Yeah, I really loved learning about how the Hayes Code and censorship gave way to romantic comedies mm-hmm. because we're like, well, we can't uh, can't get directly sexy, so let's just do a little little slapstick and some jokes, which is actually probably uh, strategies I've had on dates. Um, <laughs> might work better on screen than off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to revisit something that we've been talking about through our series, the Hayes Code uh, was basically this moral code that existed over Hollywood films that you couldn't say certain things, show certain things, and you obviously couldn't have certain types of characters. And of course, all of this encompassed staying away from sex and drugs and all of that dangerous stuff. Hence, you do get all of the witty repartee between characters, which is basically the cornerstone of romantic comedy. And who doesn't love some witty repartee? Uh, Repartee. Hello. Um, Before we get into this final episode, though, can we just take a little nostalgic look back? 
everything that we've covered. <laughs> because let's let's see where we started from and, and where we've arrived. Because we started with rom-coms 101 mm-hmm. and really with the Hayes Code mm-hmm. and talking about how the genre evolved. And then what did we talk about? So then we talked about the independent career woman who uh, basically yes. gets saved by love. Because she works too much. She's married to her job. Yeah, we talked about uh, people of color, characters of color in rom-coms. They tend to be shoved off to the side. And how romantic comedies are the most segregated genre in Hollywood. They're super segregated because even when you do have a gay character or a black character or an Asian character, that person is likely going to end up the sidekick, which was another episode we did. Oh, yeah, the sassy but probably unlovable or undateable sidekick. That's right. Who's just an accessory to propel the protagonist's story. Exactly. Well, And speaking quickly, though, of people of color, one of the uh, studies that we were looking at in this episode just mentioned as an aside that if you look at just crowd scenes mm-hmm. in romantic comedies, even those are usually a sea of white people. Well, we did discuss, was it in the original episode? We did discuss romantic comedies as a type of science fiction. Oh, yeah, that's true. So the rom-coms clearly happen in a universe or on some sort of plane of existence where uh, people of color are just, maybe they're on another planet somewhere. Yeah, it's it's like an all-white planet where people magically meet. And they can have, they can afford, like, giant apartments. Mm-hmm. Even though they write one, like, magazine column per month. Yeah. And somehow there are dozens of Matthew McConaughey's <laughs> just waiting for you. I, that is funny to imagine that... Um, the typical romantic comedy characters, everyone from a Meg Ryan and a Tom Hanks to Julia Roberts, Richard Gere, uh, Kate Hudson, Matthew McConaughey, that they all exist. It's like the same person. Yeah. It is funny <laughs> to imagine that this person is just insane. Well, maybe that's the appeal of the ensemble rom-com, oh, which I God. feel like is kind of the new, the newest iteration where you it. just pack all the stars and all the storylines and into one Valentine's Day or one, like, why can't they do, like, an Arbor Day? I would like to see a very arbitrary holiday ensemble rom-com. An Arbor-trary? Oh, Caroline. <laughs> My love for you only grows. <laughs> but today, we are closing out this series talking about LGBT rom-coms because in the... Uh, Hollywood mainstream rom-com canon, only white people fall in love and only straight people fall in love. I mean, it's a very heteronormative cisgender genre. Yeah, and I mean, it's important to talk about how LGBT characters have been portrayed over the decades because even still in more mainstream um more mainstream cinema, and this is changing gradually, especially now that we have marriage equality, but gay characters have typically been denied the happy ending. They've typically uh, been relegated to that sexless sidekick role. And when you look at Hollywood around the time that the Hayes Code was instituted, really the only way for gay characters to exist, (laughs) if they existed at all, was through super negative, awful stereotypes. Well, and I have a feeling that that's obviously not just the Hayes Code and religious organizations like the Catholic Legion of Decency 
that would bring its hammer down um, if any of the films got too racy, but also just the general homophobia of the day. Sure, exactly. And But you had that homophobia institutionalized through the Hays Code and through the Legion of Decency, uh, which labeled LGBT people as deviants, sexual deviants. And so... Just like the Hayes Code forced filmmakers to get creative, like you can't show sex, but you can show the, you know, the witty, funny slapstick lead up to sex like instead. Like our, our, our verbal foreplay. That's right. Well, filmmakers had to get creative with showing or including gay people. And unfortunately, rather than the the high side of things, which is like, oh, from censorship, we get romantic comedies, which are like cute and fluffy. Uh, when it came to LGBT people, it was like, oh, you're the villain. And so one of the first tactics used to navigate this ban was a continuation of a character that Hollywood had created a little earlier leading up to the Hayes Code, which is the sissy. And this character did start to dwindle over the lifespan of the Hayes Code simply because the sissy even was too overtly gay to be depicted on screen. And so basically... In general, if you look at real life outside of the movies, homosexuality was seen as this sort of attack on masculinity and gender norms, which in the 1930s and during the Great Depression was already under attack. You have male breadwinners who are suddenly out of work and unable to provide for their families. And so the sissy or the pansy was sort of a way to deal with those anxieties. This was one of Hollywood's first gay stock characters. And this character was portrayed as over-the-top effeminate, lipstick-wearing, has a thin mustache and a trim suit. And really now I'm just picturing John Waters. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're just two-dimensional characters, obviously used for a cheap laugh. Um, And I think it's worth noting, too, that also during this time, even if it's just an implied gayness, only gay men existed. Oh, yeah. Because also, I mean, like, we have the psychoanalytical panic um, peaking at this point, worrying about, like, girls hanging out too much together and possibly becoming lesbians. Um, But I think there were still kind of vestiges of that old Boston marriage era assumption that, well, two women can't really do much with each other. (laughs) So... Yeah, they all have Barbie crotches. Well, and also it was all men making the movies. Oh, yeah. Um, And the second of three basically horrific uh, stereotypes of gay people that would continue to reverberate forever is portraying gay people as villains or victims. And so in the 1930s and 40s, uh, one of the other ways to navigate around the code was to portray gay people as villains or victims. And this is yet another stereotype that Hollywood helped institutionalize and whose echoes are still felt in popular culture. Um, Basically, gay people were uh, shown to be committing terrible crimes because of their sexual orientation with the implication that homosexuality leads to insanity. And this is another one of those nuances that was totally lost on young Caroline watching old movies. Like, I didn't know that someone was supposed to be gay. I just, it was like, oh, it's just a fancy villain. Well, yeah, because in those days, homosexuality was in 
the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Correct. So, of course, they were deviant. Of course, they were deviant. Yeah, and Alfred Hitchcock was one filmmaker who definitely leaned heavily on this particular trope. If we look, for example, at the movie Rope, it's based on the real-life killers and lovers Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, who met at college in Chicago. And... They kidnapped and killed a boy as an intellectual experiment in staging the perfect crime. Basically, they were evil. And weird, interesting personal side note, my family's lake house in Michigan is right down the street from Loeb's family farm, which is now a wedding venue. The Richard Loeb? Yeah. Oh. The Loeb family. Their their farm in Michigan which is now, it's called Castle Farms, and it's right down the street. I grew up driving past it all the time. And didn't he use a similar device in Psycho where Norman Bates's uh, inner evil is sort of quietly attributed to his homosexuality? Yeah, I mean, well, and, and the reason we get that assumption is because of his close relationship with, with his, his mother. With his mother. Oh, I was hoping we were going to say oh. that at the same time. No, I just saw your eyes light up, and I, I backed away. <laughs> I wanted you to have it. Uh, how creepy would it be, side note, if instead of Stuff Mom Never Told You, this podcast was called Stuff Mother Never Told You? <laughs> um, I laugh sort of hollowly because a lot of people do call it that. St- but usually it's like Stuff Your Mother Never Told You. Maybe that's just my father who says that. <laughs> that might be what I'm thinking of. Um, but can we talk about Ben-Hur? Because <laughs> another weirdo Kristen as a child moment. It was uh, one of my faves <laughs> as a kid. And I really, uh, of course, did not pick up on the potentially homoerotic relationship between Ben-Hur and his former BFF, Masala. No, oh, Kristen, he wasn't a BFF. Well, initially they were BFFs. Well. And then Masala turns on him and Gore Vidal, who partially screenwrote Ben-Hur, later got into a public feud via the L.A. Times letter section with Charlton Heston when he came out on a, a documentary called The Celluloid Closet saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I wrote it so that uh, there was, you know, a secret gay relationship between the two. Charlton Heston never knew, but th- that was always in the background. Well, yeah, um, Gore Vidal said that, yeah, it was totally meant to be implied that Ben-Hur and Masala had been lovers in the past and that Masala wanted to reignite their relationship. And the director was, like, totally against this. This is obviously horrific. Gay people are terrible. We can't have them in our films. Um, But Vidal promised to, quote, never use the word. There will be nothing overt, but it will be perfectly clear that Masala is in love with Ben-Hur. And it was so between the lines because this was the other tactic of using of how to paint gay characters it was so between the lines that this biblical movie with gay undertones ended up being a huge award-winning blockbuster and it's possible that i missed the gay undertones because i as a child only saw this movie on mystery science theater (laughs) so my only exposure to it was having some robots talk over the movie. That sounds like such a better way to watch it, first of all. Um, secondly, my childhood memory of watching Ben-Hur is just me zeroing in on their um, armor. And the, they had, like, the pokey nipples 
in the, in the Why chest is that a plate. Thing? And I don't mean this just in Ben Hur. I mean in general, armor doesn't need need nipples. I know, and that and that's what I thought as a child. Like, huh? Was it? Those are nipples. I'm, what are those nipples doing there? I'm feeling strange, and I don't know what to call this. But I love that, like, years and years later, Gorbadal, you know, makes this claim. And Charlton Heston writes a letter in to the L.A. Times. It's like, you, you are doing a disservice to Billy Wilder. And then Gorbadal writes back, and he was like, oh, Chuck. <laughs> Chill out, and then he he and then winky emoji. Yeah, because you know that Charlton Heston would not like be cool. Like conservative Charlton Heston would not have been cool with playing a, a quietly gay character. Hashtag masculinity so fragile. Oh, but onward we go. <laughs> That's right, because one classic classic film that I super need to go rewatch now as a grown up person that helped weaken the Hayes Code was uh, Billy Wilder's classic romantic comedy, Some Like It Hot, that came out in 1959. So basically, cross-dressing helped put the first little dents in the armor, the nipply armor of the Hayes Code. The movie features Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis in drag, basically the whole time, almost the whole time, fending off male suitors and enjoying a little quality time with Miss Marilyn Monroe. And since they spend so much of the movie... In drag, the movie was condemned by the Legion of Decency. It was banned in Kansas, did you know? Um, It also did not get the Hayes Code's seal of approval. Um, And Jack Lemmon's friends also warned him that he would essentially damage his reputation as a masculine actor by dressing up as a woman. And isn't it, it his character that's eventually proposed to by a guy in the film. Yeah, so basically another way that this movie ends up toying with gender and presentation is that uh, Lemon's Daphne gets proposed to by a millionaire, and when he rips off his wig and says, I'm a man, the millionaire's response is, well, nobody's perfect. Which is kind of great. It's sort of a progressive moment. Yeah, but I mean, the studio even brought in a female impersonator named Barbette, according to this great article in IndieWire, to teach the men how to walk like women so that they could uh, portray women better on the screen and pass. But Jack Lemmon was, uh, he had other ideas. But they still dressed up, uh, they cross-dressed and would walk around the MGM studio and see if they could Get into places, right? Yeah, they they went in, which would enrage North Carolina legislators. They went into women's public restrooms uh, to apply their makeup, and when they finally weren't getting really strange looks from people in the in the bathroom, they knew that they could they could pass that they were ready. And I gotta say, Tony Curtis was pretty attractive in drag, and who knows, maybe that is what made the Legion of Decency a little uncomfortable because they were like, I don't I don't like how I feel when I. <laughs> I'd look at him on screen. And with the film coming out in 1959, it does seem like it is a reflection of culture starting to slowly, slowly, slowly open up to even just the possibility of gay people as people and not just stock characters. Because 10 years later, you have the Stonewall riots. And even in... The late 1950s and early 1960s, you have the homophile movement, which was a social movement of gay and lesbians essentially asking to 
be assimilated into broader culture and to have the same kinds of civil rights um, that straight people were afforded. Yeah, and in the 70s, finally, you mentioned the DSM earlier, homosexuality is removed from the DSM, so it's no longer classified as some sort of mental disorder. But more context as we move through our timeline of rom-coms, in 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act is passed, DOMA. So do you think then that the passage of DOMA, like, essentially... So do you think then that the passage of DOMA took gay rom-coms backward? Do you think that we would have seen more had we, I mean, obviously, had we had marriage equality earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think, and and uh, scholars link so much of the development of gay rom-coms to what was going on contextually at the time in society, but um, I don't know that it necessarily took gay rom-coms back, but it definitely put a massive stumbling block because, of course, the cornerstone of a rom-com, too, is the eventual marriage, that if it doesn't happen at the end, there's a promise of marriage at the end of a movie. Um, And two of those scholars are Kyle Stevens and Deborah Modelmog, who definitely link the way that LGBT characters are shown in movies to their place in mainstream society at the same time. And so... Because marriage is sort of seen in society, but also portrayed in rom-coms as basically the way that you become a functioning, socially acceptable adult. It's definitely the key in the movie that's like, hey, look, this person has grown beyond his or her narcissism to become a contributing member of society and will go on to procreate. Like, well, oh, but... Gay people aren't allowed to marry. There are no same-sex marriages happening yet, and we still only have the sexless sidekick character. And in the process, you're denying these gay characters any sort of sexual agency, which is really a reflection of just denying their existence and complexity as people and also denying them the potential of being desirable to other people. Hence, things like the sexless gay sidekick. Yeah, and by denying them the happy ending of tying everything up with a marriage bow at the end of a rom-com and allowing them a place in the social order, they're just sort of left out. Doesn't every girl grow up dreaming of her marriage bow? (laughs) Her marriage bow. I know. And, I mean, this doesn't mean... though, that marriage isn't present in gay-focused rom-coms. Kyle Stevens writes that, regardless, a lot of the narratives in these movies still hinge on impending nuptials, sometimes the protagonists, sometimes a family member's. Um, But it's always a looming wedding, he writes, that forces the homosexual hero to confront his desires. And... And he writes, complicating Byron's dictum, romantic comedies with homosexual heroes that end in marriage would constitute a tragedy. In other words, gay characters couldn't get married. Obviously, we're pre-marriage equality. So you don't get that happily ever after ending. And if they did, it could also be construed as not a great win because it would still be hewing to that heteronormative, conservative, traditional value system. So there's no winning. So there's almost no winning in this uh, in this explanation. And then in 1997, we get In and Out, starring Kevin Klein and Magnum P.I., otherwise known as 
Tom Selleck. That's who he is. I, I just only picture the mustache, so like I can't hear his name in my brain over the mustache, even though in the movie he doesn't have a mustache. True. It's, it's very confusing. Yeah. It's a whole whole new Tom Selleck. It's like a on different screen. face. There's so much real estate above his lip, I just don't know what to do with. But anyway, I'm I'm saying all this having not actually seen the movie myself. Um, but Stevens uses In N Out as an example of the anxiety that can come up around same-sex relationships and the inability to tie things up with a wedding. So in in and out toward the end or at the end, you see, spoiler, sorry, uh, the lead gentleman, Kevin Klein and Tom Selleck, putting on suits. They're all handsome. They're clearly getting ready for a wedding. And oh, oh my God, there's all this tension of like, wait, a wedding? This is a year after Doma was passed, uh, unfortunately. So so how can two men be getting ready for a wedding? Um, but don't worry, uh, 90s audience. It turns out that it's just one of the men's parents renewing their vows. So even a quote-unquote gay rom-com uh, has straight people tying the knot in it rather than a, t- a same-sex couple. So this basically just reaffirms that sacred, sacred hetero love at the end. So I read the Stevens analysis before I watched in and out for the very first time. Seriously, this rom-com series is just done so much good for my like pop culture knowledge i'm finally catching up i'm in like what 1990s is seven yeah yeah you're you're getting there like sixth grade yes finally (laughs) um and i found stevens's critique of in and out to be overly harsh in comparison to what i saw okay as a 2016 viewer um because, A, it's laugh out loud funny. Mm-hmm. I was surprised how how much I found myself laughing throughout the whole thing. Um, also, Joan Cusack is wonderful. I mean, it's it's an ensemble cast. Oh, perfect. Joan Cusack is in it? Oh, yeah. Jo- Should have said earlier. So, Joan Cusack plays Kevin Klein's fiance. And oh. the relationship between them is really sweet because they obviously have a true platonic Mm. love for each other and they've never had sex Mm. and uh, she has (laughs) gone through all of this dieting to like make over her body so that she can fit into a wedding dress. Um, So there are all these other tropey anxieties that the movie plays with as well. Um, And Tom Selleck, without his mustache, comes along and essentially opens Kevin Klein's eyes to the fact that Matt Dillon was probably right. Um, and to me, the whole thing was really satirical because I was I started watching it expecting to be kind of horrified at the almost birdcage like mm-hmm. level of the sun's, you know, like disdain and homophobia. Um, and of course, the small townspeople, once they start suspecting and later find out that Kevin Klein is in fact gay, mm-hmm. he loses his job and people start turning on him. But then in the end, it's so redemptive because essentially it's a story about showing audiences how being gay in no way like makes you a different person. It doesn't 
it isn't some t- type of character failing. And so you see this small town rallying to support Kevin Klein's character and get him his job back after Bob Newhart. <laughs> oh, God, Bob Newhart's in this Bob movie? Newhart is the principal of the school, and he reluctantly asks Kevin Klein to step down after he outs, you know, comes out of the closet publicly. Um, so I, I wish that I could have seen it in the late 90s because it is such a mainstream film with such an A-list cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would be curious to go back and, and read reviews from the time um, about it because to me it's still, even though it played a lot on gay male stereotypes, there are a lot of Barbra Streisand jokes. <laughs> There's this whole scene of Kevin Klein dancing um, <laughs> in a rather effeminate way. Um, but at the same time, when he has his quote-unquote bachelor party, when he's still closeted, Kevin Klein's character, um, he gets really frustrated because all of his kind of like blue-collar, small-town guy friends are like, hey, we're going to play your favorites. It's Streisand night. And Kevin Klein's like, no, no, I'm a man. I don't want to hear that. And they're like, but it's our favorite too. <laughs> so it's kind of cute how they play around with a, a lot of that. But yeah, you... Aside from, you know, the comical kiss that he and Tom Selleck share, which we're going to talk about later on, it is also a product of its time in how unsexual Kevin Klein is. And even after he and Tom Selleck get together, how unsexual or desexualized, I should say, their relationship is. But it is very much a product of its time because Kevin Klein remains really desexualized in his character does even after he gets together with Tom Selleck, um, even when they are very lovingly putting on, you know, each other's tuxes, helping helping each other tie the tuxedo bow tie. Tie the um, tuxedo knot? T- t- exactly. Mm. Um, that's pretty much as far as their physicality goes. Mm-hmm. And that's when you remember, oh, yeah, this is coming out on the heels of Doma. And I mean, in this era, people do love a rom-com. Oh, yes. Uh, they do love a rom-com. Model Mog cites Mark Rubenfeld. Uh, I guess the, this must be a fellow rom-com scholar. Also, what a great phrase. Model Mog cites Rubenfeld. <laughs> uh, and Rubenfeld notes that the 90s were rom-com boom time. I mean, we don't have to tell you people this. You've been listening to our series. You already know. But in 1999 alone, there were 15 Hollywood romantic comedies that sold more than 3.4 million tickets at the box office. And eight of those actually grossed more than $100 million. So basically, at this time in the 90s, we are clearly in love with love. We're in love with happy endings. But the thing is, all of these gay rom-coms, and, and I really, I don't say gay rom-coms as like a dismissive or pejorative thing. I'm, I'm lovingly saying gay rom-coms. Um, these, these rom-coms have to find an alternative ending because there can't, like we said, there can't be that wedding at the end. Uh, it can't be too serious. It can't be too passionate. Like the gay characters can't, or the same-sex characters can't love each other too much or, or kiss passionately even. Well, and it seems like as a result of that, a lot of the mainstream in quotes, gay-ish rom-coms are more about 
a straight person either, a, a presumably straight person either discovering that they are gay, like navigating a journey with their sexual orientation, mm-hmm. or a straight person being in love or attached to somehow a gay person. Like um, Object of My Affection. With Jennifer Aniston and Paul Rudd. Where, yeah, where he is gay, she is straight, she's pregnant, she wants Paul Rudd to be her main squeeze and help raise the baby. Um, there, there were a lot in the 90s, too. That was like prime time for all of that anxiety, too, about like straight women falling for gay men and wanting to form the conventional family unit with them. Well, isn't it also that time that the whole gay best friend trope is starting to peak on TV as well? You have Will and Grace, Sex and the City. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, think about it, though, because Will wasn't allowed to be very sexual, where at least Jack got to flirt and be outlandish. And Stanford on Sex and the City wasn't really allowed to be sexy or sexual either. He was also more tropey and like almost a girlfriend. So you have these characters that, are again, are devoid of the sexual, devoid of the political, and are basically the best friend. Yeah, because obviously our culture still doesn't know what exactly to do with it. So you have to have some straightness, it seems like, in there so that we are kind of— Coloring still within the lines for the most part. Yeah, basically. And included in coloring within the lines is the way that LGBT-centric rom-coms are distributed. Because it's not like many of them have been huge hits in mainstream theaters outside of major cities. They're more likely to be in your art house theater. Mm. Uh, Here in Atlanta, that's Tara. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not even kidding. Like, if you, you got a Tara. That sounds so awful that our, that the movie theater, the movie theater, y'all, that we go to in Atlanta is, is Tara. Well, yeah. All but, gone with the wind. But it's not just gay themes. It's, uh, I mean, any type of outside the mainstream theme at all. That's where I saw Obvious Child starring Jenny Slate, which is all about, I mean, it's a rom-com, but it's about abortion. But, I mean, that's the thing. These themes that exist outside of the white straight, uh, conservative, traditional storylines. Procreative. Yeah, yeah, that are enjoyed in mainstream theaters end up in these art house theaters because Hollywood is just not down (laughs) with distributing something that might not make money. I mean, let's be honest. Yes, Hollywood has racism and sexism and all that stuff, but it also wants to make money. And if it's afraid that people aren't going to shell out the dollars to put their eyeballs in front of the screen, then they're not even going to bother. And so basically, as uh, scholars Model Mog, Rubenfeld, and Stevens argue, this really reinforces the othering of LGBT people and the idea that same-sex romance and sexuality are shameful and something that you, as a straight person in the major theater Me? you oh. shouldn't even bother being interested in and so basically if you have an lgbt centric rom-com or featuring uh lgbt themes if you want to wind up in a major theater those same-sex romances have to be like in and out completely comic or ultimately tragic a la brokeback mountain but that is not a rom-com oh no uh mostly non-sexual and white because, I mean, when's the last time in a major theater you saw an LGBT rom-com about people of color? Well, also, when was the last time in a mainstream theater, like an AMC, you saw a gay rom-com, period? Yes, well, exactly. And so one thing that um, I believe it's Model Mog talks about 
in her paper in the Journal of Popular Film and Television from 2009 is the presence of the key kiss. So the key kiss, think the end of... One of my least favorite movies, Never Been Kissed, with Drew Barrymore and Michael Vartan. I really enjoy it, but... Sorry, everyone. No! I mean, we can have different tastes in rom-coms, Caroline. Oh, thank God. Um, But that key kiss, when Michael Vartan runs out and kisses Drew Barrymore on the baseball field, that's the key kiss. And the key kiss symbolizes that commitment is happening, true love has been found, this is serious committed love, and these people are together now. And everyone approves of it. They have the whole community support. Right. Because, you know, in Never Been Kissed, the stands are filled with everybody in town. As if you need somehow to reinforce the fact that, like— You might as well have big cartoon arrows pointing to the couple kissing like, this is who you're cheering for. We want them to be in love. I feel like I needed those arrows and hope floats because I didn't want those characters to be together like so bad. One thing I've learned from this series is that you hate Hope Floats more than anything. I think that Hope Floats has come up in every single episode of this series. And here's the thing. I love that movie. But I hate... Harry Connick Jr., oh, no. like what he does to her. <laughs> we, I know. We can't I, go I can't go back. I can't go back down that road. We already had <laughs> feedback on Facebook that was unhappy with me. Um, okay. So all I'm trying to say is that the key kiss symbolizes seriousness. It yeah. symbolizes that two people are in love. And if those two people are of the same sex, well, that just means you're going to the art house theater. <laughs> and a lot of times... In those movies, the key kiss is not going to happen in a packed-out baseball stadium or at a wedding with with both families there. Um, It's usually in a more private setting where it's just one-on-one. And it is interesting, though, as Model Mog points out, and something that I've never thought about until all of our rom-com scholarship, um, is the fact that so many of these uh, key kiss scenes— And the whole audience is cheering or the whole township or the whole baseball stadium is cheering for the kissing straight couple or or opposite sex couple. This is emerging around the same time that DOMA was passed. So you do. You have all of these, like, straight people anxieties. Well, and, I mean, think about how a decade before what was going on in the gay community. It was the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. So before we have all of these rom-coms happening you have to have a philadelphia like it's we had to move through those cycles because aside from one aids rom-com uh that i could find cited i think it's called jeremy i mean they're in the 80s there's nothing like funny at all of the portrayal of gay characters on screen because all of it was like basically trying to shake mainstream America to say, hello, this is real, this is happening and we're dying. Yeah, exactly. So because All of those negative stereotypes about gay people and these, like, fearful assumptions that AIDS was the quote-unquote gay cancer, as it was first reported on in the New York Times, and all of the homophobia that was still happening, um, and just the, the slow recognition of gay people as existing and being worthy of attention and respect as people, it takes until the mid to late 90s for us to see them not as this other group of people who are having something like a horrible epidemic sweep through them, but who are having love lives 
love lives that are in no way connected to tragedy. Mm-hmm. And as a byproduct of all that gay activism, though, that happened in light of the AIDS crisis, it does pave the way for lighter films that we're going to talk about when we come right back from a quick break. All right. So once we hit the 90s, right? Yes. This is this is rom-com boom time. Style, personal style is peaking. We've got lots of frosted tips. We've got those uh, flipped up bucket hats with sunflowers on them. <laughs> That's right. I actually had a I had a flipped up hat because I, I dressed as Matilda oh. to a, a second grade costume parade. I bet you were adorable. I I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know. I hope I was. Um, and and well, those negative tropes around LGBT characters didn't disappear. Like we said earlier, mainstream film and TV slowly began to feature more positive portrayals of gay characters. Again, they might not be more than two-dimensional kind of like tropey sidekick characters, but at least they're not villains whose sexual orientations have driven them insane. Yeah, to murder people. Yeah. (laughs) That's a plus. I feel like that's a step up. Well, this is also the time, especially in the mid-90s, when we start to get the first... LGBT rom-com cult classics. Yeah, so in 1994, which I also believe is the same year that Reality Bites came out, I'm pretty sure. So, I don't know, 94, like something great was happening. Good year. Good year for movies. But yeah, we get Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which as far as eccentric movies about drag queens in a bus going across the desert goes is really, really heartwarming. I really love Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And can you tell me a little more about it? Because I have never seen it. Yes, it is on my queue, um, but I've never seen it before. Basically, you have some uh, drag queen characters. You also have a trans woman character, which when I saw the movie, didn't think anything of it. But when I'm looking back now and I think of the context of the time where we were in 94 and where we are now talking about trans rights and visibility, that's pretty stinking incredible. Um, And, 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 and not to spoil it, which really you should see the movie anyway. But the trans woman, I mean, she's not painted as a caricature. I mean, a lot of ridiculous things happen in the movie, and they are, like, dressed up and shown putting on makeup. Even when they're stranded, they're putting on their fabulous clothes. But she doesn't die. And I know that's that's crazy. Like, what? That's, like, the bare minimum, right? No, I mean, so often you had gay characters or LGBT characters in general meeting some sort of horrible end to compensate for their evil and their subversiveness and and whatever. Um, But she finds love. Oh, she gets the rom amid the calm. Yeah. Oh. She 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 gets the happy ending. That I mean that is massively progressive for 1994. 1994 Australia, but I mean Australia does have like uh, I want to say is it Sydney that has the big drag queen culture? Oh, I think so. Um, but yeah, and and so I love Priscilla Queen of the Desert and the following year, I don't know what's in the water. Uh, a movement towards equal rights, maybe. Um, but we get to Wong Fu with love, Julie Newmar. And this uh, is Patrick Swayze, John Leguizamo, and Wesley Snipes. 
dream team as drag queens. But again, looking back, yes, they were drag queens and they performed in drag, but their characters were really, really woman identified. I mean, they were still, when they were by themselves in their house in this movie, they were still a lot of times, especially Patrick Swayze's character, dressed and behaving as women. And so I'm wondering now if you could go back and look at that movie and does it have more to say about trans women? But, I mean, however hokey this movie is, I mean, you do have these three outlandish characters coming to a small town and changing hearts and minds. It still is incredible. This movie, my mother took me to see this movie in the theater, and she loved it. Loved it. But how could you not love Patrick Swayze in anything, though, honestly? Mm. But John Leguizamo's character in that movie, I think her name, I seriously think her name is Chi-Chi or something like that. Um, John Leguizamo's character has this, like, adorable falling in love storyline where she meets this young farm boy, you know, who's never been away from home. And he he just thinks she's so beautiful and exotic uh, because, you know, oh, my goodness, a Latina woman and she's beautiful and tall and broad shouldered. Um, And he has to then grapple with her actual identity. So so these cult films, these early LGBT rom-coms are are such interesting time capsules in yeah. the 90s. Well, and and treating these characters as people rather than just accessories. Um, I'm so curious, though, to know what you think about a movie that came out the next year in 1996, the year the Olympics came to Atlanta, <laughs> um, when The Birdcage came out. Because... Now, I did not immediately think of The Birdcage as a rom-com, but some argue that it is. I feel like it kind of... It could. It sort of, like, sits on the line between a rom-com and just a Mm -hmm. com-com. And I tried to watch it recently, and it was unbearable because as delightful as Nathan Lane and Hank Azaria are, their son's, like, deep-seated, like, embarrassment and all of just the homophobia um, in it coming from the sun. I mean, I, I I get the whole plot line. That creates the conflict. But he's just awful to his dads. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, Robin Williams and uh, Nathan Lane are the fathers of the son who's newly engaged to Callista Flockhart. Hank Azaria is like their houseboy. And I use that term. I understand. But I use that term because he literally is, is like the tropiest, most caricatured character ever. He wears little short shorts, denim cutoffs, and is hysterical. But he is a total trope. Um But no, I thought the exact same thing. And when I was looking at this as a potential rom-com, because you do have a lot of rom between uh, Robin Williams and Nathan Lane, uh, despite all of the caricatures that are in that movie, I thought the same thing. I was like, I don't know today if you could have this movie because the driving force is them being afraid of upsetting their homophobic son. And how embarrassing they are. Yeah. You know, but you're right. I mean, there are really sweet moments, especially of Nathan Lane toward Robin Williams. But partially it's because he has on false eyelashes and is batting them (laughs) so perfectly. That's another movie both of my parents loved, Mm -hmm. The Birdcage. 
Which, I mean, if well, you knew my parents. Uh. Well, and it's so colorful. It's a very yeah. vivacious movie. Um, but, yeah, a, a little different to watch in 2016 versus 1996. Yeah, and then the next year is when we get in and out. In 97, we get Kevin Klein. He's about to get married to a lady. But his former student, who's now a successful actor, Matt, Matt Dillon. Dillon Jinx. There we go. Uh, is up on stage delivering an acceptance speech, thanking his teacher, quote, who is gay? And Kevin Klein, this like sends him on this journey of self-discovery because he's like, I'm not gay. I'm engaged to Joan Cusack. <laughs> Am I gay? And so, you know, like, okay, great, 90s movie. Make the straight guy the impetus for the gay guy's self-discovery, whatever. We'll overlook that. in and out has the key kiss. That is central to so many rom-coms, but it is completely slapstick. It's devoid of that intimate close-up and the swelling music. Kevin Klein is like flapping around crazy-like as uh, Magnum P.I. kisses him. And the th- that is essentially, Model Mog argues, that is essentially what kept in and out in the mainstream theaters and out of the art house theater ghetto. Uh, she writes, the implication is not only that heterosexuals are naturally revolted by same-sex eroticism, but that gays should be too. The entire audience is asked to back away from or to laugh at the gay kiss, not to desire it. And apparently the, uh, the filmmaker considered taking that scene out because he was worried that it was too much, like a bridge too far, but it tested so well with audiences that they left it in because it's hilarious. Right. Yeah. On the one hand, good for you not being disgusted by two men kissing. On the other hand, like, oh, but it can only be if it's played for laughs. Although I will say that a very much redeeming factor in all of this is that while, yes, there is this slapstick kiss and a lack of physicality between um, Tom Selleck and Kevin Klein really beyond that. At the end, the town's embrace and support of Kevin Klein and the way that they do it, and I really can't describe it, and you need to watch it because it made me well up a little bit, I'm going to be honest, is not for laughs at all. I mean, there's, it's still kind of funny, but like the underlying message is a very serious one that these are people. This is like a beloved English teacher in small town USA who has tremendous friends and a devoted family who also happens to be gay. You know, at one point you have, uh, what's his name? He did uh, the Quaker Oats commercials. What? The Quaker Oatmeal commercials, and he was in Life Goes On. Wilfred Brimley. Okay, so Wilfred Brimley, this old guy, plays his dad, and he's a farmer. And at one point after Kevin Klein comes out as gay, Wilfred Brimley walks in, and he's just like, you know, son, I don't, I don't necessarily understand it all, but I love you. You know, I mean, it's, it's just like very sweet. Um, so again, I have, I have a couple, a couple bones to pick with Stevens and Model Mog. <laughs> <laughs> but a couple years later, we have. But I'm a cheerleader, which I watched this morning, Caroline, before we came in to record this podcast because. When we, on Facebook, asked Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners of their favorite rom-coms, 
But I'm a cheerleader was one of the, in in the top ten, mm-hmm. and it stars Natasha Leone, who is sent off to gay reform camp essentially, and she falls in love with Graham, who is another lesbian there, who is um, resisting reformation, and. It's so campy, and um, have you ever seen House of Yes? It has very much the same kind of, like, outlandish feel as that movie starring um, Parker Posey. It might also be because both movies have a lot of pink in them, (laughs) but it co-stars RuPaul, who's hilarious in it. I mean, and it just takes all of those stereotypes, all of those caricatures that we've seen in a lot of these mainstream films leading up to this point and just blows them up mm-hmm. and essentially like satirizes all of the homophobia happening at the time. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It is on Amazon Prime and Google Play. <laughs> and this episode is brought to- <laughs> and this episode is brought to you by Netflix. <laughs> Whoops. By lesbians. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Go back and watch it. It is laugh out loud funny. And Natasha Leone, a young Natasha Leone, is a delight. Well, so when we move into the new millennium, I wonder if I can get echo on my voice there. In the new millennium, Millennium. the year 2000, actually the year 2001, we get Kissing Jessica Stein, which stars Jennifer Westfelt uh, as basically this... Uh, she thinks she's straight lady who answers a woman-seeking-woman ad in the paper, clicks instantly with the woman who placed it, and hijinks ensue. Well, and that was another gay rom-com that Stuff I Never Told You listeners loved and that was, like, almost a critical darling at the time because it does treat sexual fluidity in a really novel way, especially at the time. Um but I got to tell you, the first thing I thought of when I was um, watching the trailer was that it starts off with her going on a date with John Hamm. And, of course, it doesn't work out because she goes on to start a relationship with a woman. But, you know, IRL, they end up getting married. Just That's a very much a oh, they didn't. tangential thing. Oh, yeah. No, they didn't. And they've just, right. they just broke up. I know. I wrote, I wrote this. I, I broke <laughs> the news on Refinery29. Yeah, they never got married. Um. But uh, I really, I really want to see that one. But I was reading a couple of reviews of it, and the one in Slate from 1999 when it came out, like almost loved it. He was frustrated because you have Jessica Stein in this relationship between two women that's like very genuine and is exploring themes in rom-coms that you never see in terms of emotional connection versus sexual connection. What do you do if you don't, that key kiss is different for both people, um, but they end up having this deep bond anyway. But he was disappointed because it still circled back to so many rom-com tropes and the two women, both of whom had been in straight relationships before, talked about men so much to each other that it seemed like that was sort of the stand-in for having a, a a guy in there. You know what I mean? To kind of stabilize the whole thing. Yeah, interesting. And then they don't stay together. No, but they stay friends. Spoiler. Okay. Spoiler, spoiler. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. spoiler. So many spoilers. 
And the thing is, I wish that I hadn't read those reviews before I went back um, and discovered that Kissing Jessica Stein is an HBO Go. So, oh, well, there you go. Okay. I know, yeah. So I watched it and very much enjoyed it um, and very much agree that it's a rom-com focused not necessarily on heterosexual love or gay love, lesbian love, but rather on fluidity and the idea of openness. But it does play on so many of the same rom-com tropes. And it's funny to see how they kind of twist it around. Not that different from in and out because you have a wedding Mm -hmm. that uh, prompts conflict. You have people from different worlds who are coming together, the kind of opposites attract situation. Um, And you have just like very stock rom-com scenes where you'll have the awkward first kiss and then them sitting nervous next to each other, not knowing what to do after that. Um, And it does ultimately, yes, kind of anchor itself around straight relationships with men. But it was, I'd just never seen a rom-com like that before. Well, I mean, you said something that uh, that I thought was important. Um, I mean, yes, we could argue very easily, and in some cases this is true, you could argue that some of these rom-com tropes are damaging, regardless of who the stars are and what the plot is. Some of these tropes are, you know, playing up people's lives and realities for laughs. But, not, again, not having st- seen Kissing Jessica Stein, is it possible that, like, that's where we should be going. And by that, I mean that sexual fluidity in relationships is shown as just normal, a normal part of a rom-com. Yeah, and that there's life beyond a relationship Mm -hmm. as well. I I really appreciated how they ultimately explored what is a very common issue when you are dating, which is the um, if you have the imbalance of someone who might have you know, a more aggressive sexual libido and someone who is more emotionally connected and how those two things really interact over the long term. Because I think that that's an issue that a lot of couples who have been together for a while deal with as as the dust starts to settle, you know, and figuring out like what that balance is. Um, the lust dust. The lust dust. <laughs> yes. Um, but But I like how... They are able to, we see these characters after the breakup happens and they're okay. We know that, (laughs) we know that Jennifer Westfeld uh, has undergone a serious, you know, a a long-term change in her life because her hair is now crimped. (laughs) (laughs) And she's using, uh, this is the big thing. So she's this writer and she hates computers. Um, She finds them just loathsome. But then at the end, when she is, like at the very, very end, when she is reconnecting with someone, I won't say who, although if you watch it, it's going to be easy to guess. She gives this person her email address. To which the person is like, an email address? And she laughs and says, yes. Yes, it's true. Email is the easiest way to get in touch with me now. With her curly hair just bobbing around. And then she goes, you know, to meet up with with someone. I feel like I shouldn't say anymore because now I'm just like revealing the end. 
of this movie. Um, but so, wait, spoilers. She talks to someone and then meets up with someone. Yes. Oh. There are more than, there are scenes with more than one person on screen. Oh. Yes. Uh, the only thing that I found unnecessary and very much a product of its 90s time is her initial, like, ew, at the thought of lesbian sex. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That is something that's played up for laughs. We yeah. saw that in Sex and the City, too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like no, come on. I, all right. But overall, I gave it a... What, what's our Sminty rating system for, for movies? What would that be? Hysterical uteruses? Oh, yeah. Tampons? Sure. Yeah. Uteruses. Uh, uteruses? Yeah. Okay, well, out of how many... Five? Five, yeah. Okay. I would give it a four and a half out of, out of five sminty gold uteruses. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's high praise. Yeah. It was very enjoyable. Hmm. Um, so looking forward to hearing what listeners have to say about that one. And and I can't speak on this mo- this next movie because I have not seen it, but it is one that I definitely want to see. It's 2004's Saving Face, which not only features a lesbian couple and one of the women's pregnant mother who has to move in with them. And, of course, one of the daughters is like, oh, I can't tell my mom I'm gay. Like, oh, she keeps wanting to marry me off. So you've got all of those masquerading screwball hijinks. But it's an Asian-American couple and their families. And it's like, oh, my God. Finally, and it looks so good. It looks so good. And it's one of the ones that someone on Twitter was like, this is one of the few LGBT rom-coms I know of. What else is out there? So I have to see Saving Face. Well, and that also is one of the few rom-coms starring Asian-Americans. Yeah, we talked about that in our last episode that you just, it's not like you see Asian-American rom-coms rolling around everywhere. I mean, it, it is so rare. And so, yeah, I... For so many reasons, not only that it just looks good, I need to see Saving Face. Um, So as we move through the 2000s, we do start to see a little bit more diversity coming in. Uh, 2004's Touch of Pink deals with issues of religion. And then if we jump forward to 2006, we get another movie that was a pretty relatively large success as far as LGBT rom-coms go. Although this one is more of a rom-com-drom. And that's Imagine Me and You uh, with Piper Parabo. And so Piper Parabo's like, she's happily committed to, to Matthew Good, and, and I he's so hot. Um, <laughs> but she discovers her mutual attraction to a woman. Okay, so it sounds kissing Jessica Stein-ish. You have presumably straight, but oh, look at this. We have maybe bisexuality or some sexual fluidity happening. Yeah, they have that in common, and they have their... Uh, more or less mainstream success in common as well. So what is up? Why why do Imagine Me and You and uh, Kissing Jessica Stein, why do they go against the usual trend of, oh my God, same-sex key kisses mean you go to the art house theater? Because it's two women. Yeah, and, and attractive white women. Yeah, I mean, and not to be like chasing Amy about it, but it's like that is more palatable usually and is more eroticized definitely than two men kissing. Yeah. Which that reminds me of, it's not necessarily a gay rom-com, but uh, one that came out a few years ago <laughs> that does include men men kissing, although they're, they're friends, is 
the movie Hump Day starring Mark Duplass, um, where he plays kind of the straight-laced guy. He's got the the house and the wife and the kid. And his friend comes to town um, who is living more of a, a wild lifestyle. He's not tied down to anything. And they get drunk one night, and they're talking about the uh, – I think it's in Portland. There, It's an actual porn festival uh-huh. um, that I want to say Dan Savage had a hand in uh, – in starting, and they get the kooky idea to make a porn and submit it because they were like, I mean, we can do this. We love each other. We're guys. We can totally, like, make a porn together. And it it could veer off into bro-y, homophobe territory, but it actually, in the end, from what I remember of it, has a really nice, honest moment of these guys actually – exploring their sexuality in the sense of, like, talking openly about it. Because when Mm. it comes down to the time they're, like, in the hotel room, they're like, are we going to do this or not? And they do end up kissing. I I won't give away the rest. But they have an an honest conversation about what it would feel like. And Mark Duplass's character actually is like, I mean, I, I did have a fantasy about a guy at one time. And it's not played up for jokes. Yeah. So, I mean, that, and again, though, that was more of an indie film, mm-hmm. but it got a lot of attention when it came out because it was like, oh, wait, we're seeing, wait, is this a bromance? Is this a, a yeah. gay rom-com? What, what's going on? How do you classify sexual fluidity and just general openness and acceptance? Yeah. yeah. Because like, oh, we're, we're totally on board if it's, two, if it's two hot girls kissing. But like, oh, wait, two guys? I don't two know. Guys? I don't know what to do with that. And especially two guys who look like... You know, I mean, if you watch The League, I mean, like, they look like two dudes, like, hanging out at a bar, maybe playing fantasy football or something. They're, like, very much bros. They're not a Stanford Blatch on uh, Sex in the City. So I, I'm going to be curious to see as marriage equality becomes more of just, like, the thing that has always been. Mm-hmm. Um, trans rights continue to become more and more accepted and destigmatized, whether we will see that reflected on the big screen. Because on the small screen, we've seen more progress with that. Yeah, I mean, things are definitely slower for the big screen. We had in 2015 another movie that I have to go back and see, which is Boy Meets Girl, and the leading lady is a trans woman. This is uh, She's played by Michelle Henley, who's an actual trans woman, thank goodness, not someone masquerading as trans, um, who gets her own wonderful storyline of self-discovery. This character is allowed to dream and have love and romance and doubt and fear, and her best friend is a dude who's like, basically okay with the fact that his BFF is a trans woman. There's not drama there. That's not the source of the conflict. Um, and she even has a relationship and tries to explore, obviously, not just gender. Gender's been all, <laughs> that's been figured out. But she explores her sexual orientation as well. And so how wonderful to see um, trans issues on the big screen displayed normally. I, I mean, I know that sounds weird, but not as a joke not as a trope or a trick or something like that. Or a tragedy. Or a tragedy, yeah, exactly. And obviously there are fewer gay rom-coms than there are, you know, hetero rom-coms, but there are so many, especially independent films, that we haven't had time to mention. And some of them are real stinkers. (laughs) 
You know, just like same Z's with uh, straight rom coms. Oh sure. I mean, never been kissed. You're not a fan. I'm not a fan. I'm trying to think of one that I hate. I'm sure that I don't know. My brain's just a little fuzzy right now. But um, I would love to hear though from listeners about their favorites and what they predict for the rom com genre because yeah. we are. At a point where some wonder if it's even going to survive Mm -hmm. Um, because in a lot of ways, like, our society has progressed beyond the typical rom-com formula. Um, So what are we going to do with it? Are we just going to keep having ensemble rom-coms about Arbor Day? God, I hope not. Maybe a gay ensemble rom-com. We haven't seen that. Well, no, I'll take that back. Gonsemble-com? A a gonsemble-com. A mainstream gonsemble-com. Because there have been indie (laughs) gonsemble-coms. Who was the the scholar? Moggle Dog and her (laughs) gonsemble-coms. Starring Dilmont McDinglehu. And I think that is the sign that our series has come to a close because we've talked so much about rom-coms now that we are making up words and acronyms that do not exist. I understood you. So listeners, please write to us. (laughs) Give us the words. We want to hear all your thoughts about this. Um, And we should probably set up some kind of Stuff Mom Never Told You uh, must-see movie list because we've gotten so many fantastic suggestions and so many films that I now need to see and have seen by virtue of your suggestions, listeners. So thank you for that. And momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can send us your letters. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Caitlin in response to our Surfer Girl episode. She said, you expressed some doubt that Queen Emma was a real person or if her name was anglicized from a Hawaiian name. She was, in fact, a real person, and my son attends the preschool named after her and which is part of a group of Catholic schools she originally founded. It's very common for Hawaiian ali'i, i.e. members of the ruling class, to have English names in the 19th century. The ali'i often intermarried with the American missionaries and businessmen who came to Hawaii. In addition, the ali'i admired the British royal system and society a great deal and borrowed from it in their post-contact system of governance as well as established religion relationships and alliances with the Brits. For example, Queen Emma's husband's name was Alexander Liholiho, and the last Hawaiian king's name was King David Kalakaua. It's difficult to overstate the influence American missionaries and businessmen had on modern Hawaiian history and culture, the names of individuals being only one small example. Kristen, I'm glad you enjoyed your visit to Hawaii. I've lived here for 13 years and still have to pinch myself when I'm sitting under a palm tree on the beach looking out at the incredible blue and beautiful ocean. Hope you return to do a live show one of these days. Oh, my God. Anytime. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. I, I want to go back to Hawaii as soon as possible. So I have a recommendation here from Christina for a rom-com. She writes, I have the most amazing movie recommendation for you. I'm not even through your Working Girl rom-com episode, and I haven't listened to the first episode in the series, but I don't care because I love this movie, and I think you will too, and I highly doubt you're going to mention it because it's not as famous, of an oldie. Wife versus Secretary 
1936 movie that clubs to death so many tropes, the gold-digging secretary and the attractive women aren't smart, and career-driven women are happier when they lay off work and get married. It's a wonderful movie you will like in the vein of My Girl Friday and Working Girl. Without too many spoilers, the wife, played by Myrna Loy, allows herself to be persuaded on really shaky evidence that her very devoted husband, Clark Gable, is cheating on her with his secretary, played by Jean Harlow. The secretary is actually a very smart and competent woman who knows gender is holding her back and is also dealing with her boyfriend, played by Jimmy Stewart, talk about an ensemble rom-com, wanting her to quit working and settle down. It's funny, smart, and is so, so freaking good. It's the first movie where Jean Harlow is in the sexpot role, but there's nothing sexpot about her. It addresses the idea that women can crave life satisfaction through a career and are just as competent and capable as men and are held back by societal rules and fears of women in the workplace. There are a few issues on the feminist front with it, but relatively minor, and overall it's very modern and liberal thinking for the times, despite coming before the post-war push to send women home. And it's not exactly like secretaries today don't deal with the same kind of thinking or that jealousy and fear of workplace romance. Wow. So uh, that sounds fantastic, Christina. I'm adding it to my queue. I need like a month off to watch all of these movies. So thank you listeners for tuning in with us all summer for our rom-com series and keep your recommendations and letters coming. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you too can learn even more about rom-coms, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 